Hey everyone, it's Christina and Leslie, and we are so excited to be resharing this episode of the Taking the Lead podcast. If you are new here, we are taking just a small break and replaying some of our absolute favorite episodes until we're back with new episodes in late summer. Enjoy! Welcome to the Taking the Lead podcast, where we empower people to be unstoppable. I'm Christina Hapner with my co-hosts, Leslie Haskins and Timothy Cunio. Like I said, I'm Christina Hapner, and I am the digital marketing manager here at Leader Dogs for the Blind. And a little bit about my background and why I'm doing this podcast is I was in media, television news for about five to six years. I was an anchor, reporter, producer, so I have that background of asking questions and telling stories. And currently, I started at Leader Dogs this year, so I'm very new to the organization. And so I'm learning about the blindness community right along with you. And my background also is in journalism. I went to school for journalism with a focus in broadcast. And so I'm really excited to be a part of this podcast, to be learning. I've already learned so much at my little time here at Leader Dogs, but I'm going to be learning more right along with you. And I've gotten to meet Leslie, who is my coworker, and she's taught me so much. And so let's hear about her background. Hey everyone, I am Leslie Haskins. I am the Outreach Services and Community Engagement Manager at Leader Dogs for the Blind. I'm also a Certified Orientation and Mobility Specialist. So that's actually how I got started with Leader Dog about seven years ago as a, what we call a comms. And I was working with individuals who are blind or visually impaired and teaching them how to travel with the long cane. I did that at Leader Dog for about six years before switching into this new role of outreach, and I'm honored to be the outreach manager. I absolutely love it. It's the best of both worlds. Not only do I still get to work with clients one-on-one and get out there in the streets and travel and teach clients how to travel independently, but now I also get to share the message and mission of Leader Dog. So I get to go out into the community. I get to go speak at different engagements and really share what we do and the services that we provide. So I'm honored to be a part of this podcast. I think we're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to share a lot of stories of different clients and kind of all aspects of Leader Dog. Uh, But first up, of course, we have to introduce our other co-host, Timothy Cunio. So Timothy, do you want to share a little bit about yourself? Yes. Again, my name is Timothy Cunio. I live in the great state of Georgia. I'm a client of both O&M and I have a guide dog. Her name is Glacier. I have retinitis pigmentosis. I have 3% of my vision in my right eye. And um, I'm excited about this podcast to share my experiences of what I went through through my life and what I went through with going to Leader Dogs. So it's a great story and a great organization, and I'm very happy to be associated with them. Awesome. Thanks, Timothy. We're, we're pumped to have you here with us. So this podcast, like we've all kind of mentioned, we're really going to be sharing stories and the Leader Dog mission with everyone. We want to talk about blindness in general and educate others on what blindness is and how it affects people differently. Um, our, goal, our goal at Leader Dog is to empower people who are blind or visually impaired to travel independently, daily. That means simple tasks of getting from the door to the mailbox, getting to uh, the coffee shop, getting to the bank, all of those little things that a lot of us take for granted on the daily basis. So we want to break down some of those stories and experiences of our clients. But Today, we're going to start with just talking about Timothy's story so that we can get to know him a little bit more and uh, kind of his journey through blindness. Yes, and we're so excited, Timothy, to learn more about your story. I'm excited to learn more about it because I am new to the organization. So, Timothy, I mean, you when did you first learn that you were losing your vision? 
Well, when I was younger, um, I, I couldn't see in the dark. And my parents was, parents were was noticing that. And so about 12 years old, they decided to take me to an ophthalmologist. And the ophthalmologist determined at that time that I had retinitis pigmentosa. And he gave me a 50% chance of going blind. So I started off real early in my uh, life knowing about it. So when you were diagnosed, Timothy, did you know what retinitis pigmentosa was? Had you heard of that before? Or was this all brand new to you? It was all brand new, Leslie. It was... Um, most of my research happened, you know, later in 18, 19, 20 years old when it really started affecting my life and uh, really was brand new at it. And I saw my cousins that were kind of having issues, but I didn't really associate enough with them to ask them questions about it. Timothy, I can't imagine myself learning something like that so young. Was there a lot of resources or were there people helping you during this time? No, it was basically I was on my own. Um my mother was, you know, kind of familiar with it, but she didn't live the life with it or didn't have any cousins directly with her. So it was basically learn as I go and I had no help. There was no, no resources or anything. We hear that all the time from clients that there's this diagnosis and there's this moment of kind of like shock value and it's so upsetting, it's scary and all these things. And then there's kind of nowhere to go. You know, what's the next step? What do you do? Um, so how did you kind of take that next step? You're diagnosed, you're only 12 years old. Did anything change for you at school? When did you start realizing like, hey, I need to get some help? Well, at school, it affected my education because I couldn't read chalkboards. Um, I remember a couple of times when I was in high school that, the, and I was embarrassed with my retinitis pigmentosis. I was really upset about having it. So I didn't want anybody to know about it. So you try to hide it in the background. So whenever we did a test on a chalkboard, I wouldn't even tell my teacher about it. I would I just wouldn't do the test. I was so embarrassed that I made that affect my life at that time like that. And I shouldn't have. But it was learn as you go and just go by the seat of your pants and you try to hide it. You can notice it like when I played basketball, there was some times I couldn't play any games because the gymnasiums weren't lit up good enough, so my coach would pull me out of the game because I would tell him I couldn't see good enough to play. And sometimes even in the games that I did play, I would miss the basketball or I didn't see it coming towards me because with the retinitis pigmentosa, I have seven blind spots in each eye. Even though I had 20, 30 vision at that time, the ball would get in those ranges or those dead spots in my eyes, and I couldn't see the ball. So it was, it was very hard to adapt with it. But as the older I got, I knew it was affecting my life because my vision, when I got my driver's license, went to 2040 vision. And to drive in Georgia, if you got worse than 2060, you could no longer drive. So my vision just kept declining as the older I got. Timothy, you said chalkboard, which I'm going to point out students nowadays probably don't even know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that also goes to show, you know, back then they didn't have the technology that there is now because students have tablets, you know, laptops. They don't even use a, I don't even know if they use a whiteboard anymore. <laughs> um, so that just goes to show you back then there wasn't much accessibility for you. And, you know, you said driving, that was a big thing for you. So when was the point that you were, wanted to seek help? Well, for me, it was a hard acceptance of the blindness. So I tried to hold it off as long as I could. Uh, 
I lost the ability to drive a car by age 30. I handed my keys over to my wife and I said, I can't do this anymore because of the liability issues of it. I was scared that I was going to kill somebody, if not myself. I really didn't seek help until I went the leader dog. And that was a big step because I wanted to push it off. If you just deny it, even though I lived it every day and I could see it going through my life, you would always think, well, it's maybe next year, maybe next year, maybe next year. And it was just hard accepting it. And until I decided that I finally had to accept it, I didn't seek any help. And then, uh, I try to get help with uh, my voc rehab here in the state of Georgia. And uh, they told me at the time when I finally reached out that I was too old for them to help me. And they basically told me to go find a blind people or a group that could teach me or what I needed to do because they wouldn't even come to my house to show me how to use a cane at that time. So I never met my first blind person until I was 46, 47 years old in my life. So I was out on my own. So it was, it was until I went the leader dog, I, I never got any help. Did you ever think that you were going to need a white cane? Like, had you seen people out in the streets ever with a white cane and thought, oh, that's something I need to explore or just honestly had no idea? No idea, Leslie. I never seen a white cane before. Never. You know, it blows in my mind, Timothy, because you said that they told you to go find somebody else who is blind because they wouldn't give you those services. And I've learned just in my short time here at Leader Dog that it's so hard for people to find services. And it just blows my mind. I mean, meeting Leslie and knowing what she does with orientation and mobility, it's such a need for people to get around who are in your situation. So what was that feeling like when they told you, you know, like, go find somebody else who is blind and get them to teach you? Well, I was going through the depression at before that because of my blindness. And I thought that eventually when I said, okay, I've got to do something or it's going to get worse. And for them to tell me that, it just put me into a deeper depression because then I thought I was on my own. There's nothing out there. And I don't know about these services. And I think somehow that maybe eye doctors should know about what Leader Dog or any organization or the National Federation for the Blind. I didn't know this stuff existed. It's, it's just insane what I know now, which I wish I knew six years ago. And it's mind-blowing how much stuff is out there that we, we don't know about because we're not told about it. Yeah. You know, in the U.S., there's only 1.3 million people who are legally blind, which seems like a large number. But when you think about the whole population, it's very small in the prevalence. Um, blindness just isn't well known. People don't understand it. People don't know what it is. There's so many myths and stereotypes out there about blindness in general. And then unfortunately, we hear your story all the time, Timothy, of that people will finally, they take that step, right? They're like, okay, I'm going to reach out. I'm going to try to get services, which is a huge deal to do that. And then they're denied. And it's it's terrifying and it's so upsetting. And like you mentioned, you kind of go back into that depression. You've taken that first step and then you've been shut down. Um, and states, unfortunately, most of the time, state agencies, it's not that they don't want to provide those services, but because of their restrictions that they have uh, with state and federal funding, they can only serve most times people with a vocational goal. And that means somebody who wants to or can get back out into the workforce and kind of give back to society, basically. But what we know about blindness, too, is that a lot of times blindness hits later in life. Therefore, there's so many individuals who are losing a career because of their blindness 
or um, can't get a job because of their blindness. And so, or they don't feel comfortable or they have other um, concerns, medical issues, family responsibilities where they can't leave the home to go work. So there are this large group of individuals who do not qualify for services, but are in desperate need of services. I mean, Leslie, just going off of that, the statistic that I've learned just being at Leader Dog that always blows my mind is that only 10% of people who are blind or visually impaired can travel independently with a white cane or a guide dog. That blows my mind. I mean, Timothy, you're one of them, but there are 90% of people who we don't even know about that could be sitting at home or that don't even know services are out there like you didn't. And so, Timothy, I mean, what was the, I know Leslie talked on the um, unemployed. Did you ever become unemployed yourself throughout this journey? Well, I used to work for an optical company. I used to make glasses for people so they can, you know, have good vision. But while mine was declining. And so I worked till I was about 35, 36. And then I decided, you know, my vision's getting so bad that they, they adapted my job for me as long as they could. But then it started struggling after the their their uh, what they did for me. So I had to decide, hey, I can't do this anymore. So yes, I had to retire at a young age of thirty six. And going into that retirement, it sounds all great that hey, I'm not going to have to work anymore. I get to sit at home. But actually, that starts weighing on your mind when you have a wife that's got to get up every day, and she's going out and working, and you're sitting home. And for me. That was a heavy weight on my mind and my ego, I guess, if you want to say that, because I was the breadwinner, but now all of a sudden, I'm just drawing in a disability check every month, and it it wasn't sufficient enough for us. And so I felt guilty because of my disease. It was affecting the, my whole family, and that was very hard to, to adapt and accept. Absolutely. Do you mind sharing a little bit about your wife's perspective? You know, you're diagnosed, now you, you've given up your driver's license, uh, you're no longer working. What was the impact for her? Well, impact on her is the weight, everything that I had on me went on to her now. And for her to, to do what she does, she goes out to work every day and she works hard. And yes, she's gotten good raises at her work, thank God, after all these years. But it was, it was a struggle. And you got to respect somebody who goes out every day as carrying the weight of the financial burden of the house. And, and for her adapting to it, you know, uh, she, I have to hang, used to have to hang on to her all the time to get around at the stores or something. And then my big feet would step on her feet and she would get hurt by me. And I felt bad about that. And sometimes I would trip her and stuff like that. And, and it was just getting where I was being a nuisance, just to be around her. And it was, it was, you know, in her aspect, it was when you're starting to hurt your loved one because you can't see, you start feeling bad and you feel responsible for her pain. And more than that, that she goes every day, go to work, and you sit at home and you feel guilty. There's a whole guiltness that's put on the weight of your mind and your shoulders. And... God love her that she's, she's capable of doing as long as she has. That is crazy, Timothy. So many people don't even think about how that can impact and whoever is in your life, whether it's your wife, your family, your friends, anybody. I mean, that is just so crazy for me to hear because, you know, when I think about 
our clients who come in, I see them come in and I see them leave so happy with their leader dog. But then we don't think about what goes on before they come here and then what goes on after they leave. And so for you, you know, going through that, losing your job, the impact on your wife, was there a moment where you were like, you know what, I want to get out. I want to see if what else is out there. Well, when you have to call her and say, hey, I got us a doctor's appointment. Can you take time off from work? Or, hey, I need to do this. And, you know, that's what I used to do with my parents when I was 16 years old. And when you're 45, 46, and you're asking somebody, you know, you start feeling like a child. And I'm not a child. And just, I felt trapped. And, and then that's when I decided, hey, it's time for me to do something in my life so I can do what I need to do so I, she can go to work every day that she wants to do and she needs to do. And and when you reach out and you're, the door slammed in your face again because you're technically called that you're too old, and it just it was it was mind-boggling and devastating at the same time. Uh, paid taxes all my life into the state. You figured there'd be something there for me, but because I'm a certain age, they tell me I'm too old. Can't help you. It's basically, you're on your own. Yeah, in the U.S., sixty percent of people who are blind or visually impaired are unemployed, and even more so are considered underemployed. And it's it really comes down to what you were talking about that education of getting those services and learning how to get out your front door independently, learning how to work the technology, the assistive technology, Jaws on a computer. Um, your phone, right? All of our phones now connect us to the world in so many different ways. But if you don't know how to use your phone without vision, it's not going to be helpful. You may have the best device ever, but unless somebody's there to assist you through that and teach you how to do it, uh, it can be incredibly isolating. We know that blindness in general is incredibly isolating for clients. And there's so many people sitting throughout the U.S. right now and the world who are visually impaired and don't know, one, that services exist, or two, how to get them, or three, maybe they do, but they don't qualify. Um, so it's a really tough, tough thing to try to go through if you're alone or with somebody because, like you mentioned, your spouse, um, your wife, your family, everybody was a part of all this, and you're all experiencing it together but it's really hard to to know where to go and to find those first steps. And so you had mentioned previously, you didn't meet somebody who was blind or visually impaired until way later in life. What was that like when you finally met somebody who's who gets it, who understands what you were going through and can relate to you? Well, my first reaction was, oh, my Lord, because <laughs> I was facing reality then because I was seeing how they were moving around with their cane and stuff like that. And it was, it, I wasn't too happy about it, Leslie. I wasn't happy about it. I denied, I had a cane in my hand, a folding cane, because I wanted a folding cane because I could hide it. Mm -hmm. And when I would go to the NFB meeting, I wouldn't have it out because I didn't want to use it. But it was just, it blew me away to see, A, that they were, they were getting around with that cane. And so to me, it was saying, hey, it's not the end of the world. we just got to find the place where you can go to get your training. We've got to find some help here. And they helped me as much as they could, but they didn't know about Leader Dog. Only thing I knew about was the NFB, that they've got a, a school in, in four or five places in America, but you had to do a nine-month commi uh, commitment to them. And usually right down, down there, they're like, 
20 and 20, 22 year olds. Well, I'm 50 at that time, almost 50 years old. And I don't, I've already raised my kids. I don't need to hang around a bunch of kids for nine months <laughs> at that age. Yeah. So that's not, that's not appealing to me. So that's when, uh, I didn't know what to do. Yeah. And thank God I went to that convention my first year when I ran into leader dogs at the NFB convention. Cause if it went, if they weren't there, God knows I probably still where I'm at right now was back then. And that's just, man, sometimes things happen in your life for the best. And it's amazing that I, I just happened to walk up to that table yeah. because all the other guide dog schools that were there, they don't do O&M training. None of them do. And if I had gone to the wrong one, I wouldn't have my training today. Timothy, so you were saying that you had a cane, but you were hiding it. Now, what I can relate to with that is, you know, not getting a pimple on my face and wanting to hide it or, you know, <laughs> having to, you know, starting a new workout routine and not wanting to go because I don't know anyone in the class. Um, so for you, was there a point where you were like, you know what, I, I need to be confident in carrying this? And when did that come for you? Well, when I went to the convention, it took me a year after going to the NFB, my local chapter. I knew I was going to go to Orlando, and I said, well, I've got to get my cane out because I wanted to do the trip by myself. I didn't want nobody to go down there with me. And uh, so I whipped that out for the first time the day I went to the airport, and it was a hot mess. <laughs> when I was supposed to go on right, I was going left. When I was going left, it was just, it was, it was, but I got through the week. I was surprised that I've finally adjusted, but I was, it was, it was terrible. It was, it was, ter <laughs> it was terrible. 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 Yes. It was terrible. So Timothy's word is terrible. So you're going to probably hear that a lot <laughs> in this podcast, just so you know. And it, Timothy, I mean, you were saying it was a hot mess, you know, kind of walking with your cane through the airport. So you had had no training prior to that, had no. you? No, none, zero. I mean, I had somebody show me, you know, how to swing it here, swing it there. But basically that was it. That was, you're on your own, buddy. Good yeah. luck. And, and I went to a convention. I flew down to Orlando. I went through the world's busiest airport in Atlanta. Of course I had to have assistance, but it's, it, it, I'm, I'm glad I did it. You know, I, I knew nothing would happen bad to me. I had that much confidence, but you, but you gotta understand, I still have three or 4% of my vision. So I was using both things at the set, both tools together, my eyes and what I couldn't see, I used a cane. So as long as I did both of them at the same time, I knew I'd be okay. And I, I did okay. And I'm glad I did the, did it by myself because it gave me the confidence that I did something out of, I had to get out of my shell to do that. I haven't traveled by myself in 25 years until that day. And it, I, my wife was scared. I rode down on the subway by myself. She was not happy about that, <laughs> but, uh, I did it. And, and I'm glad I went. Timothy. So when you did this trip by yourself, did you find that people were helpful when you were asking? At the airport, they're great. Uh, if you, for me, People kind of are standoffish if they see you out in the public with a cane sometimes. And that's the sad bat, sad fact about it. And um, people run away from me when I was using my cane because they, it, it, to me, a cane 
just they they were worried that either I was going to run into them or they were going to run into me, and they were nervous every time I got around somebody with a cane. So some people are helpful, and when I'm a, I'm one of those blind people that if somebody wants to help me, I'm very polite. I don't jump on their case about it and say no, I don't need no help. I'll take it because it might help them feel better about themselves. And who knows, them helping me may make their day because I'm a nice guy. <laughs> I make everybody laugh. That's my goal in life, make everybody laugh. And you do a great job at that. But you bring up a good point by letting somebody else help you and have a positive experience with somebody who's blind or visually impaired is going to encourage them to hopefully also offer assistance to the next person that they see who's visually if impaired. If you're mean about it, they may not help somebody one day that really needs the help. And that could affect somebody else's life. So be a good representative. Just say, no, thank you, but thank you for offering if you don't really want it. But if they do, you know, be very appreciative of it. Show thanks because somebody's taking their time out of their day to help you do something. And that's not a bad thing. Yeah. You brought up two really good points that I wanted to talk about. One is when you had the cane, but you kept it folded up. You didn't want to share it with the public. You didn't want to be recognized as blind. So we call that passing. And basically that is you're trying to pass as quote unquote normal or sighted. Um, you don't want people to know about your visual impairment to use this tool, kind of broadcast it out to everybody. But what people sometimes understand once you start using the cane, like you're ex uh, sharing your experience here, is that people are willing to assist. Once they understand, you know, that cane, it really is an identifier where somebody can say, oh, he has trouble seeing. Now I understand why he might have bumped into my shoulder, or now I understand why he couldn't navigate this situation by himself. So it is really important just to hold that cane, even if you're not using it properly, right? Just having that cane out is an identifier, which can sometimes really relieve a lot of stress and anxiety because it kind of fills in the gaps of those social situations where you do bump into somebody or you do have to ask for assistance as to where the restroom is when there's a giant sign on the wall that says restrooms this way. Um, so sometimes it is nice to have that cane, but I wanted to talk about that. And then there was one other thing. Uh, oh, another myth. Uh, you kind of mentioned, you know, you got this cane and you had no idea what to do with it. You're just kind of swinging it around. Um, and a lot of people don't understand that the idea of the cane is to swing it around and find things, right? How many times have I told you, Timothy, or I'm sure you've heard me talk to others, is that as an O&M specialist, we love to see canes that are beat up and bruised because that tells me that your cane is finding those obstacles and not your body. So I love to see a beat up cane and not a beat up bruised individual. So I learned what you're explaining, Leslie, myself very recently. I got to do a blindfold walk with a cane with one of our other orientation and mobility instructors, and I was mind blown. I ran into the grass. I was running into so many things. And I never realized, Timothy, how you have to use your memory so much to remember, okay, I'm coming back from my room or my office or wherever I am. I have to remember where that is to turn myself back around once I made it to go get my coffee or whatever it may be and get back to your room. And that's something that someone like me who is very new to the blindness community, that blew my mind of I have to use my brain so much in my memory to remember directions. And so what was that like for you, Timothy, when you were first learning to use the cane and remembering your locations where you were going? Oh, when I went for O&M up there with Leslie, I, Leslie was my O&M instructor. 
I remember one time I got lost in the daytime. I forgot where I was, but there was, there was obstacles like, uh, there was blowers and stuff like that. There was lawn uh, services at their mowing yards and I, the noise got me confused. So the first thing you got to do is stop, take a deep breath and just backtrack a little bit and you can figure out anything. You're not lost. You're just not in the right place at that moment. And that's the thing to do. Backtrack where you came from. And I I found the uh, downtown, uh, uh, the headquarters downtown there, the school. And so um, you just got to remember, and you got to learn how to count. Sometimes you got to count door jams. Sometimes you got to count the steps that you take. And you've got to remember some things. But you got the capabilities of doing what you need to do. You just got to take a deep breath and focus a little bit better. And that's what I had to learn because, boy... Getting at my age, sometimes you forget where you're going, just just going out your front door. But you just got to take a deep breath and just just pay attention a little bit more. And that was something I had to learn. And Leslie showed me how to do that. <laughs> and uh, she gave me the instruments, especially when I did my first night walk. Uh, it was a little nerve-wracking. I never walked in a day, day in my life by myself in the dark before. And when I went for that night walk, I was nervous. And I did a big mistake that night. I I veered off into the middle of the street, and I remember Leslie coming up, and Timothy, yes, uh, you're out in the middle of the street. And I go, <laughs> oh, my Lord, what have I done? I got upset with myself because I didn't line myself up properly. But after that, the rest of my walk went great and perfect, and I got emotional about it because I finally did something in my life that I'd never been able to do before is walk in the dark by myself without any assistance, and that was just mind-blowing for me. That is amazing, and that's amazing how you and Leslie met. I mean, how has—I'm going to ask you both this. How has your relationship grown since then? Oh, I'll go first. All right. So Timothy and I met, yes, when he came for a week of O&M, and we got to work together for the entire week, which is a lot of hours together. So it's really great when you connect with somebody and uh, kind of build a friendship, which is exactly what I think we did. Um Timothy made some amazing accomplishments throughout the week. He went from never really having any formal training to accomplishing the biggest task, which was traveling at night independently. And of course, he had some goof ups, but I'm loving listening to your interpretation of what happened and your stories and and how you're still using those skills today. But I think your biggest message here, Timothy, correct me if I'm wrong, is that you learned that you can do it, right? There's when you're blind or visually impaired, things can be very intimidating and it feels like I can't, I can't, I can't. But there's always a way to do something. It's just thinking about it a little differently, taking a new approach, using a different tool, which is exactly what you've done. But as far as our friendship, we have realized we have lots of things in common. And the last couple of years, uh, I was honored to, to see Timothy when he came back for his guide dog, which I know we'll get into in another episode. Um, but we've just built a great friendship and I'm so excited to be doing this together and a couple other great projects. So I'm delighted. Well, I knew Leslie was all right because she's a former Rusty Wallace fan. (laughs) So right then there, I knew we were going to be all right. Um, at that time she she was pregnant and I'm going, Oh my Lord, she's okay. And she, Oh, we, we, she made it fun. She, I knew not. I knew I could have fun with her, but I knew when the serious time was going to be. And she lets you know when it was fun time, but it was she lets you know when it. Okay, now you got okay. I'll I'll straighten up a little bit. But uh, and uh, it was a lot of walking, 
and she she would try to do little tricks on me, and I would figure it out. Okay, she's doing all right. So the next day, I'd, okay, guess what? We're going to take an extra walk. We're going to go an extra block. <laughs> so she's going to have to do that now. And she knew what I was doing. <laughs> but we had, she made it fun. And I, and I was grateful about it. It was just me and her one-on-one. Uh, that was a great thing. I didn't have to, you know, have anybody else learning along with us. So I had the whole day with her. And so that, that, that was great. It felt like she was my, my instructor. She was teaching and Nobody else that week. And I love that aspect of it because she was concentrated on me and I was concentrated on what I needed to do. And it was a great experience. And I hope when I come back for a refresher, Leslie gets to do me all over again because that's who I want for my training. But it's it's been an amazing ride. And you can do. Once you go to Leader Dog, you get the tools. You get everything you need. And it used to be, I don't know if I can, is now I can. And if I I'm, might have my little mistakes, there are going to be mistakes. It's not going to be perfect. And you got to accept that. And that's, that's okay. You just got to brush yourself off and go on. If it didn't hurt you, you're good. And so just go on. You're going to be fine. You're going to figure it out. You've got the tools. They teach you everything you need to do. And it's worked for me. And if it works for me, it can work for anybody. <laughs> I love that perspective, Timothy. And I am so thankful to be able to do this podcast with both of you and learn more about both of you. And, you know, earlier, Timothy, you know, you guys just mentioning your relationship. I mean, it wasn't just you came for O&M training and then you left and nobody ever talked to you again. I mean, you and Leslie have this amazing friendship now. So it just shows the testament of working together with a leader dog just grew from that. And we're just going to continue to keep getting into your story in our next episode. So excited about that. Well, what's great about leader dog is once you get there, you feel like you're part of their family, and it never changes. Even when you go back home, they check on you. If you got to come back for more training, okay, come back. We'll do some more training. If you want to come back and get a guide dog, all right, okay, come back. We'll go give you a guide dog. And time to replace your guide dog, which is a sad moment. They're always there. And once you're part of the family, it never changes. And I miss going, I miss Rochester Hills, Michigan. I miss, it's my second family and I cannot wait to come back and see everybody again because they make me feel like I'm normal. I've never had that experience in my life where I felt normal. But when I went to Leader Dog for the first time, I felt normal. They were there, they're trained and they make you feel like you're somebody because guess what? I am somebody. Even though the world makes me feel like I'm not, they make me feel like I was. And I finally, it was so, it was, it was just blown, blew me away. And I just, I know they love us up there and they're there for us. And that's just a warm feeling. And I've never experienced that before in my life. That is beautiful. And you're absolutely right. You are part of the Leader Dog family, just like everybody else is, and myself included. That's how I got involved in Leader Dog. I actually came as a practicum student during my uh, master's program at Western. And same thing, I fell in love as a professional. I loved seeing the success stories. I felt like I was very supported. Um, it's a wonderful culture and atmosphere. And we're happy you're a part of the Leader Dog family, Timothy. 
Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to the Taking the Lead podcast. I'm your host, Leslie Hoskins, with hosts Timothy Cuneo and Christina Hepner. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into Timothy's experience with blindness. Please join us next week to learn about Timothy quite literally running into the Leader Dog and how the Leader Dog programs have impacted his life. And if you like today's podcast, make sure to hit subscribe and check us out wherever podcasts stream. 